Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, it is the most extraordinary privilege for me to welcome one of the world's greatest living writers, Isabel Allende, to Books, Books, Books. Like many, I have been reading Isabel's books for many, many years, and like many, I was captivated from the get-go by her best-selling debut, The House of the Spirits, published in 1981 and in English in 1985. Faye Weldon said this in one of my favourite quotes ever about a book. Now that's written, the rest of us can all go home. Do you think the world comes to an end when the perfect novel has been written? Other novels of Isabel's include A Long Petal of the Sea, Of Love and Shadows, Eva Luna, The Stories of Eva Luna. In 2012, the California city of San Jose proclaimed 27 November Isabel Allende Day. In 2014, then-President Barack Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, American's highest civilian honour. In 2016, Isabel received the Penn Center Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2018, she received the National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. Isabel has an astonishing 15 international honorary doctorates. Isabel, welcome to Books, 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 and thank you so much for joining me. Nicole, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm very happy that we are together tonight. <laughs> now, we are going to be talking tonight about your beautiful book, Fair Letter. We'll be discussing some of the major themes which echo the themes of so much of your work, love and passion, motherhood, feminism, and South American politics. But let's start by talking about this extraordinary character who you have created, Violetta, whose lifespan uh, goes over an incredible 100 years and is bookended by the two pandemics in 1920, the Spanish flu, and of course, in 2020, COVID. I'd like you to start by telling us a little bit about her childhood. What was Violetta herself like as a child? And Tell us a little bit about some of her most formative childhood experiences. When my mother died shortly before the, the pandemic, many people said, why don't you write about her? Because we were so close. We were such good friends. And we wrote to each other every single day for decades. So I know my mother's life better than she does. And I have every, all that recorded for, for posterity, all the letters. But I couldn't write about her. I was too close emotionally. And then my mother was an extraordinary woman, but she did not have a very extraordinary life because she, she was always dependent. She was raised to be a senorita, uh, educated to be somebody's mother and wife, dependent first on her father, then her brother, then her first husband, second husband, and ultimately me. 
So she could never quite develop all her talents and her vision and, and much of her personality. Also because she was married to a very authoritarian and macho guy, my stepfather, whom I loved, by the way, he was great, but he was very macho and domineering. And so I created a, a, pers a person, my, my character, Violeta, that would be like my mother in every aspect, but would have one very different thing. She could support herself from very early on in her life. And I don't think there is any feminism if you cannot support yourself. Mm. And so Violeta is, uh, is born when my mother was born in 1920 in the Spanish flu influenza in some unnamed Latin American country that anybody can guess is Chile. And she was born in, a in an upper class family like my mother um, with those aunts, the uh, spinsters that lived with the family, the grandmother who lived with the family, this enormous house full of people. And, uh, and then... Uh, she ended up in the country and developed a, a quite, I, I would say that her personality evolved because she was in touch with nature, with indigenous people, with the poor, making cows and, and barefoot. In that sense, she, she could, um, she, she, how can I say, she became very aware of herself. She was very self-sufficient from very early on. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what happened to Violeta. She married very young to the wrong guy. We always mm -hmm. do. I don't know how many times you have gotten married, Nicole, but I have three husbands. And let me tell you, they improve in time. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to come to that, Isabel, because I love some of the comments that you've made about love in older age, which seem to be echoed in Violeta's own experience. <laughs> she marries a man that, that is that everybody thinks is perfect for her, as I did at 19. And then you find out that the, the whole thing is really boring. Let's talk a bit about Fabian, because that's one of the questions that I had. So as you said, it's very important to her. From an early age, she is she she is financially independent. At the age of 20, she persuades her brother, Jose Antonio, to hire her in his business, Rustic Homes. She goes to work for him. And at about the same time, or just before, at the age of 19, she meets Fabian, a German vet. And finally, after many years of engagement and of him pursuing her, she finally marries him at the age of 25. I've just made a note of some of the ways she describes him. Wet blanket, predictable, bland, boring. Why does she marry him, Isabel? Because people had to get married then. <laughs> I mean, if you were... 25 and you didn't have a, at least a fiancé. I mean, you should have been married by then and with kids. But if you didn't, you were already considered, an, I mean, unmarriable and, and therefore a spinster or whatever. So it was important to trap a man very early on when I was, when my mother was born in the 20s. Mm -hmm. Now, in the 40s, when I was born in that part of the world, also, things had not changed that much. Mm. It's, of course, it's not like that anymore. Tell us a little bit about that marriage with Fabian. It only lasts for three years. Uh, what's what's the marriage like? How successful is it? He thinks it's very successful and she's bored to death <laughs> and, and she doesn't have kids. So if, if she would have had kids, maybe she would have been so busy with the kids that she wouldn't have noticed how boring the husband was. 
And uh, the, 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 he's a good man. He's an honest, good workaholic man who loves her very much, who is faithful. He would have been great if, if she could be entertained in some other way. But, but really, they, did, they had very little in common. Therefore, when, when something happens in her life that, that a great passion, she doesn't hesitate. She just leaves him. One of the things that I want to ask you about is the use of humour in your books. And one of the, the really lovely kind of ironies in this relationship between Violetta and Fabian is that his specialty, his specialty as a vet, is the artificial insemination of cows. However, he is unable, of course, to get her pregnant. And she makes a, a couple of funny remarks about that. But she also says at one stage, when she's reflecting on this marriage while she's still in it, she reflects on her marriage vows and she'd said, if I'd known how long a life can be, I would have modified that clause in the marriage contract. That, of course, is the clause about till death do us part. How important is humour in your writing? Nicole, humour is important in life. I don't think that as a woman you can survive in a macho society if you don't have a sense of humour. And, and humour has been present in in my life, my mother had a great sense of irony. So we, we developed this relationship that was based on irony and humor. And according to my mother, humor is the capacity to see things from behind, from an angle that nobody else perceives. And I think she was right. Um, sometimes I, I read something and I laugh aloud and I read it to Roger and he doesn't get it. He said he doesn't think it's funny. So it's humor is very particular. It's private sometimes. Mm-hmm. I have very few people with whom I really, really laugh, and it has to be in Spanish. Let's move to the end of the marriage to Fabian. As I said, it lasts for tw- for three years, and it ends when she's twenty eight, and she meets the man who will really be the great passion of her life. Julian Bravo. There are other relationships. We're not going to talk about all of them. Spoiler alert. I don't want to give too much away. But we are going to talk about this relationship with Julian Bravo, which is really, it seems, the defining relationship of Violetta's life. Tell us about him. When she meets him, what do we know about him? He's irresistible. He's the great seductor. I mean, any woman would have fallen for him. He falls from the sky. He's a pilot in a private little plane that lands in the, in the lake. And uh, he's handsome. He has a, a, a heroic past. He was a pilot during the war. Um, there's a legend about how many German um, planes he, he destroyed. Um, he's athletic. He can sing. He can dance. And he is a, a, a professional Don Juan, he, she, when she, he meets her, she, he holds her hand, looks at her in the eye and say, have we met? So, I mean, and she, she feels that her knees are not holding her anymore. And from that moment, she leaves everything for him. Mm-hmm. And he, he is always irresistible. He's exactly the opposite of the husband. He, he's adventurous. He's always entertaining. He's, he's always surprising. And, and he's a scoundrel also. Mm. 
So, so she doesn't know how to handle him and puts up with a lot. One thing that I certainly hadn't realised that you, you make the point is that in those days, so she meets him in 1948, and back in those days, divorce wasn't legal in her country. And I hadn't really thought about that. Nicole, Nicole, it wasn't legal in Chile until 2004. Mm. It was the last country in the world. Mm. So the only option available to her when she wants to end the marriage to Fabian is annulment, and she needs mutual consent for that, which he won't give her. So she embarks on this relationship with Julian Bravo, and it, it did make me think a little bit of Anna Karenina and, and Vronsky in that she's the one that pays the very high price. She's the one that's socially ostracised. She's seen as, as you say, an adulteress, a concubine, while he goes on living his life. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, about the, the sacrifices she makes really to, to be with him? She sacrifices everything and she puts up with his infidelity, with his uh, very um, shady deals and with the fact that he's abusive mm. Many, and, he's, and he's alcoholic also. Mm. But, but she doesn't see it that, that way. When she sees abuse and domestic violence in other women, she then connects it with her own life. Mm. And then she reflects and says, why did I put up with all that? Mm. And that's only later in life when she's much older, when she starts to work older. with the women's organisations, as you say, and works with women who talk about their own experiences that she realises she herself was a victim of domestic abuse. Yeah, and she couldn't get out. Not She was economically independent. She was educated. She was young. She was healthy. She could support herself. Why didn't she get out? She wasn't even afraid of him. She was just stuck. In, in, in that relationship and couldn't couldn't get rid of it. There is one explanation, isn't it? And I wanted to ask you about this. She At one point, so the relationship goes on for a long time. They have two children together and we, we'll come to that in a moment. The relation lasts for some time. And as you say, there's a lot of rage, there's, act, there's, there's rage, there's emotional abuse, there is actually physical abuse. And she feels, as we know so many do, ashamed of herself that she forgives him and that she stays with him. She says something really interesting at one point. Lust can hold us hostage for so long. It was never so humiliating as in my middle age. Could you talk a little bit about that? I think it, it has to do with my own experience. I did such crazy things for lust and passion that I look back at my life, Nicole, and I, and I say, what was I thinking what was I thinking? Because I have forgotten how powerful hormones can be and, and how they make us crazy. And that happens to her. Mm. Uh, I, in my middle age, let, let's say from 35 to 45, 50, I was crazy. I could sleep with anybody that would have looked at me twice. Mm. Not a good thing. Let's talk a little bit about motherhood. So she has two children with Julie, and the first is Juan Martin, and the second is Neve. First of all, how does Julian react when he finds out she's pregnant, and what sort of a father does he become? He doesn't like the fact that she's pregnant because he has no intention of being a father. So the first time, he he just puts up with it because, okay, what can he do? If there was no divorce, there was no abortion either, of course. Uh, 
And so the, the, the second time he wanted to have an illegal abortion because he, he can't stand the idea of being trapped as a father. And she insists and she has the baby. He's never a good father. But then when, when the girl, Nieves, is around six, seven, she starts show, showing her personality and she's very much like him. And so everything that he wanted for the son, the mm. daughter has. Because the son's not like him at all, is he? No, the son is sensitive, is um, um, intellectual. He doesn't like violent sports. He's not adventurous. None of the of the stuff that the father is, but the girl is. And so he admires Nieves. He adores her. He he pampers her. He spoils her rotten, and and really pulls her away from the mother. I want to ask you a little bit about Violetta and what she's like as a mother, because when we meet her in the early days, she makes a few funny remarks about children. It's it, it seems fairly clear that she's not that keen on having children. She, when she's younger, decides she doesn't want to be a teacher because she doesn't really enjoy children and their company. And we also learn that she doesn't really feel that she had a great relationship with her own mother. She was one of six children. She came after five brothers. So... I just wondered, what sort of a mother is she to Juan Martin and to Neve? I think she's a distracted mother, like my mother was, in the sense that uh, there were people, other people taking care of the children, and that helped a lot. And she had a job. She was very interested in making money and supporting herself and everybody around her. That's what I did when I was young. I was much more interested in my job than in being a mother. And... I have the feeling that I wasn't a great mother. My, if you ask my son, Nicolás, he will say that, yes, yes, I was. But that's because he wants to please me. The truth is that I was a very distracted mother. But I had a wonderful mother-in-law. I had grandmothers. I had um, maids in the house that helped. Everybody helped. And so, and that's the case with Violeta. So she relies on other women to help her with the kids. Mm. Let's move from motherhood to feminism. And let's start by talking a little bit more, we've touched on it already, but about Violetta's career and her independence. So she becomes really from that start she got at the age of 20 working for her brother's company because of her own nous and uh, she's, she's inherited, as you say, her, business, her father's head for business. She's got a lot of business intelligence and she becomes a very successful businesswoman. So much so that she is able to be financially independent of the men that she's with, first with her husband, Fabian, and then with Julian. And in fact, she actually supports them financially. How do each of those men feel about her financial independence? I think uh, that mostly they don't want people to know, and uh, which happens a lot with women, even today, women who make more money than the husband, they sort of hide it. They don't want other people to know that they are more successful than the husband. Uh, and it, they are sort of ashamed of the fact that, that, uh, that they, they are the providers. I have never had that problem. I have always been very explicit about what I do and what I make. But I see around me, and that would have been, of course, the case in my mother's generation. Mm. And nice. the, men, the men profited in a way because Julian never had to take care of the kids. Mm. She paid for everything. 
He never had to give her alimony or support her. Or she, she was always lending him money and putting up with his debts, mm. which and I did t- in my life also. And she was also tidying up his business affairs. I mean, even as the relationship started to wane, he would call her in when he needed somebody to go through the books, the first and second set of books, and when he needed somebody to look at and to tidy up his business affairs, she was the one that had the head for business and did that for him. Later in life, uh, and again, I just want to be very careful not to give away too much of this wonderful story, but later in life, Violetta becomes passionately involved in working with women's organisations in in her country, and she finds that deeply rewarding. Like you, she sets up a foundation in her daughter's name. Yours is the Isabel Allende Foundation, and hers, like yours, fights for causes relating to women's rights, in particular the health and reproductive rights of women. I can't let this opportunity pass given the timing without asking you about how you feel about the Supreme Court overturning Roe and Wade. I'm wondering, were you surprised by that? I'm wondering what you and other women in the United States can do. And I'm wondering, how do you hold on to hope? It has been a terrible blow for women in the United States. And although the, some of the, of this opinion had leaked months mm. before and people were talking about that possibility, nobody or, or very few people except the ultra-conservatives really believed that that was possible. To take away a constitutional right, which is the right to privacy. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so there has been a, a horrible reaction of most people, but there is a, th- this... Is supported by the Christian right, mm. which is a minority in the United States that holds hostage the Supreme Court and many of the political uh, spectrum in this country. My foundation and other foundations and other uh, people who have been working for reproductive rights forever mm. will just have to work harder. And uh, things can change. It, it will depend on the vote. Mm. If, if women, especially young women in their reproductive years, realize that this has been taken away and now they have to, to use illegal abortion in case they need it. And now they are talking about uh, regulating and banning contraception in some cases. So that, that and their and sex education. So all this is the Christian minority who doesn't want women to have a sexual life. They, uh, Except in marriage and for and for reproduction, a way of controlling women. Did you? I mean, with the life that you've led and the work that you've done, did you ever think that you would see this day? Did you ever think that no, you would see that I, I, fundamental right removed? I, no, in that but way? I lived without it. Remember that mm. I grew up in a time when it was not available, mm. and when I came to the United States, of course, I was. Uh, I saw that it was available in the United States, and and started fighting and and working to make it available in places like Chile and and other countries in South America, and especially Central America, where you can go to prison for a miscarriage. And so um, I I thought that it it would never change in the United States, but I know how how it is not to have it. So let's come back to Violetta and the work that she does in her later years with women's organisations. How rewarding is that for her? 
she starts, uh, after the military coup, someone from her family disappears. And um, then some bodies are found and they have, people, are, women especially, poor women, are coming to identify the bodies. She also comes and she gets in touch with these women that have suffered so much and that they are they are grieving for so much and they have no political power or power or power of any kind and she starts helping and then that help becomes more organized and then when there is one particular case very close to her of a woman that was almost killed in a domestic violence situation mm-hmm. um then and she she shelters that woman and realizes that that is one case in millions and she has to do much more so she starts working opening shelters for for women and then decides that that's not enough either she has to get into advocacy and change the politics in the country and make people aware that this is a problem because people didn't talk about it mm-hmm. years ago and you are too young to know this nicole but but women did not who were abused would never admit it and they would put on makeup to cover the bruises mm. because it was shameful to be beaten up mm. and and the police would not interfere the courts would interfere it was considered a, a, pro, a, a domestic problem mm. not mm. someone so something that the, the courts should deal with mm. Isabel in my reading there've been so many wonderful quotes from you there's one that I wanted to ask you about Little by little, women are chipping away at the patriarchy. The fact that we have not been able to replace it yet doesn't mean we have failed. It means that the job is monumental. But it's not impossible. I believe it will happen, but not in my lifetime. It will happen only if women are educated, informed, connected and active. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, about this idea of the chipping away at the patriarchy and the work still to be done? We have been doing that for decades and decades, chipping away. We have not been able to uh, destroy the patriarchy or replace it because the world has been a patriarchy for thousands of years. And women have been kept in a sub- submissive role in most of the world for too long. So there is a lot, the, the work is humongous. I remember when I started with feminism in my 20s I thought that it was such a reasonable such such a, a fair struggle that anybody could understand that this was needed and in 10 years maybe 15 things would have changed now I'm 80 and we still are there there's a lot to be done but if I look back at how things were when I was young things have improved in most of them at least the west i want to talk a little bit now about south american politics as you say your book is set in an unnamed country it certainly seems to bear a lot of resemblances to chile you write about in particular and i, I don't want to talk about it too much because i want people to read the book and find out <laughs> for themselves but you write a lot about what happened in south america and chile and other countries in the 1970s and in the 1980s about operation condor about the dirty war in argentina about the disappearances about the terrible things that happened the terrible political repression that happened in so many of those south american 
countries, including your own. How important is it for you to write in your novels about South American politics, about what happened, to tell those stories? Um, all my characters move, well, they are fictional characters and their stories might be fictional, but they, the, the stage is real. I do a lot of research and I want my characters to be immersed in a social and political reality so that you, they, they become believable. The difference between a romance novel, for example, is, and, my, and what I write, is that in a romance novel, characters live off their passions and emotions, and, and it seems to be in a sort of limbo where everything from the external world doesn't affect their lives. My life has been determined by political events, that I had no control over them, and they determined the crossroads in my life. Mm -hmm. So I know how important that is. And if I said a story, for example, in Haiti in, in the 1800s, of course I have to research thoroughly everything that happened with the revolt of the slaves and what was happening in France at the time and the Caribbean and the influence of the United States. All that is important. So if I'm placing a story that happens in a hundred years, that is uh, the, practically the, the, the whole 20, 20th century and part of the 21st, in Latin America, I have to describe the political circumstances. What happened that their lives were, were this way and not another way? They didn't, they, they didn't live in a bubble. What role do you think historical fiction can play in educating people about politics, about international politics and about history? I think that, for example, in my case, I learn a lot when I read a good book that, that is set in a certain time with a, a certain place. And I learn about that. And for me, it's important. But I don't, know, I don't read or write fiction to learn or to teach. I just want to tell a story. But the story is set in a place and a time. Mm -hmm. So the, if the reader wants to research more, you can always Google it or, or go to the library. There is always ways if you are interested in that. But my role is to just use the facts that influence the story, that, that are part of the story. I mean, if I have a character whose son disappears, I have to explain why the son disappears. Isabel, I'm not sure that I've got the connection right, and I wanted you to talk to me about it. It seems to me that there is a definite connection in this book to the House of the Spirits and to, is it gra Grandmother Nivea? Is there yeah. a link back? Would you like to talk about the link between the two? And both of them, of course, are what people describe as, I'm going to get this word wrong, epistolary novels. So this one is in the form of a letter that, Violetta is writing to her beloved grandson, Camillo, in the same way that House of the Spirits was also, all it started anyway, as a letter. Um, so I just wondered if you could talk about the connection between the two. You know, it was almost unconscious on my part, but, pe but people who have read both books have, have noticed. Uh, the, the, in the House of the Spirits, the grandparents are Nivea and Severo, and they have 15 children. 
So you can imagine that I have 15 characters for 15 different novels, all with the same family name, Del Valle. And, and so, and I used it in uh, Portrait in Sepia. I used it in uh, Daughter of Fortune. I use them now with Violeta. I keep bringing that family in. It, it's, it, it's a wonderful resource if they have 15 children. Um, so in this case, they are connected. The, the, there is a, an aunt, a great aunt that was, or, or, an, or an aunt that was Nivea. And uh, so, and then they talk about that she had a daughter that was sort of crazy, was clairvoyant. Was that Clara? Clara, House of the Spirits. Uh, yeah, that was, she was weird. And everybody in the family thought that she was really a case, a nutcase. So there's, there are some references. And also it's the same period. It's also the same, the same time. And Isabel, you've been incredibly busy during the pandemic. This is one of three books that you wrote, isn't it? Yeah, I wrote Violeta, um, The Soul of a Woman, which is a little uh, book about feminism. Mm. I finished another novel that is um, mm. going to be published in June, to, uh, in, I think in June of next year, so in a few months. Coming back to Violeta, one of the other things we see is her finding and as I say, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but we see that she finds some very, um, well, she finds love later in her life a few times. And there's a lovely quote from you that I found about um, your own situation. I know that you're in your, this is your third marriage and it's been a very happy one and that it was perhaps. Well, well, well. <laughs> Nicole, I married at 77. Yes. So we have been married for three years. Of course, it's working. Yes. Just wait. Let's see. Let's give it some time. <laughs> but it's such a lovely story that very sadly, your second marriage, which was a long one, ended in your early 70s. And I imagine that you may not have anticipated that you would find such happiness and love again. And you said something really beautiful, and it seemed to me that it was also reflected in Violetta and her experience. You said, I will be 80 this year. I value love more than ever. I'm often asked how it is to love at this stage. It's like falling in love in our youth, but with more patience, tolerance, good humour, and a sense that we have very little time left. And then you say, that's what my character Violetta learns through the course of many loves and husbands. Would you like to talk a little bit about that concept of love and passion in later years? Um, I, th I think that Violeta, because Violetta lives 100 years, there are different love affairs in different stages in her life. There is a first marriage of convenience, of, or because of social convenience, let's say, <clears throat> when you are supposed to have children and have a family. Then there is the great passion of her middle life. And then there is a, a love that she develops First, she has a lover that she loves very much for a while. And that's just a physical passion that doesn't demand anything. It's just giving, giving. And then she finds uh, this man at the, when she's old, and they live a sort of companionship with a great sense of humor, sharing everything. But it's not what she shared with Julian Bravo. Because life is different and she's a different person. So today, I don't think I could have, I could fall in love because I'm physically attracted to somebody. 
today I want kindness mostly, good manners, someone who who smells good, who can cook something, <laughs> a few things that 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 make life domestic life easy to be to be in good company someone who likes dogs as i do who doesn't interfere with my work all that is important much more than sex, the sexual passion of my 40s i married willie because i fell in lust with him i was 45 i don't think it would happen again mm. <laughs> frankly I mean, I keep I keep throwing these quotes at you, but there was another one that I loved where you were talking about sex and you were talking about the importance of kindness and companionship. And I think you said, forget about a half-naked body, the G-spot's in the ear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Don't look for it anymore. You won't find it. The idea is that it's the connection, the connection. What what some somebody murmurs in your ear can be much more erotic than you know what than a vibrator. Okay, so my final question is about your fiction overall. You you've said this and it's so clear. You said all fiction is ultimately autobiographical. I write about love and violence, death and redemption, strong women and absent fathers, about survival. And then you also say about another subject that haunts me, power with impunity, both in the family and in society. Would you like to talk a little bit about that that last theme, that idea of power with impunity, whether it's in the family situation or whether it's in the broader societal situation? I don't know how early in my life I was aware of power with impunity. Uh, because it was long before the military coup in Chile. It wasn't because I saw the abuse of the military and the total impunity for the crimes and the atrocities that they committed. Uh, much earlier, I was already horrified, for example, if I if I saw any or, or, or read or, or, or heard anything about the Nazis and the concentration camps and all that. That, that really was terrible for me, or abuse of animals. Uh, or abuse of children. So when 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 there is someone who is vulnerable and weak, and someone else who has the power to hurt and is not accountable, people commit atrocities. And the the worst case scenario, of course, is slavery. And uh, I wrote this book, um, Island Beneath the Sea, which is, as I mentioned before, about uh, the slave revolt in Haiti. And it took me four years of research. And the things I learned about what really slavery is or was, because still we have millions of slaves in the world today. So uh, why is that possible? Because no one is accountable, because there is total impunity, because people are not protected. And that, that haunts me always. Isabel, thank you so very much for joining me to talk about Violetta. It's been a great, a great joy for me, as I say, as somebody who's been reading your books for all those years. And I just wish you all the very best. Keep writing. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a lovely interview, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. 
If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Bye.